It is a go with God's time here on The Breakfast Show. We are about to get into our Bible study. We have text messages to get through and we have another question in our quiz. Another opportunity to get your name in the running for... This week's prize. That's right. This week's prize is a taste of food as medicine and food as medicine. Amazing books by Sue Rad, um, which essentially enables you to cook for your best health, which is something that everyone wants. Not only is it healthy, but it also tastes good. And like, if it tastes good and it's healthy, it's just what more could you ask? What more could you ask of food? That's what we're trying to give you guys. But let's have another clue for the quiz. What city is the subject of the Old Testament book of Nahum? 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text if you know the answer. If you do, you will get an entry into the draw that will be drawn at the end of the week to win these two books. But again, that question was, what city is the subject of the Old Testament book of Nahum? Nahum, 0491-064-669. All right. And, of course, we have our text messages to get through. Coming through, We've got some interesting discussions coming out of some of these text messages right here. So uh, the first one says, Those stories out of India and Pakistan are just atrocious. Cannot wait till Jesus comes back and makes everything right again. Could not agree more on that one than if we head over here. Uh, Malaysia and the death penalty, totally against the death penalty. But we all know that according to the Bible, it will be brought back worldwide by death by guillotine. So mm. that would be a reference to Revelation chapter 13. Not sure that it mentions guillotines there, but it certainly mentions a worldwide death penalty in Revelation chapter 13. Well, it's in Revelation 20 where it says those who have been beheaded for Christ's sake, you know, they will be ruling in heaven and judging the world. It does. So maybe this person's inferring that because of that. Yeah, well, there's been people who have died a lot of different ways. Yeah, uh, for for Christ. Yeah, that's right, (laughs) other than just by beheading. Okay, Fina, moving back to reality and fairness in sports, I wonder who are the idiots in – the idiot who actually changed it to start with. (laughs) Yeah, you would wonder about that. That, Yeah, I agree. mm -hmm. Or or who allowed – uh, biological men to compete against women in sports in the first place. Uh, that's it's, it's just bizarre. But anyway, uh, in a country like America where guns are legally used by most people, researchers do prove, like you said, that if teachers and others were allowed to carry guns, the amount of deaths would be drastically reduced if they were trained properly. I believe the government is looking into doing just that. So this is an interesting question. You know, the whole gun debate in America. Oh, I have it all the time. Because... All kinds of people. Yeah. It's like everyone loves talking about it. Absolutely. Because it's, you know, it's significantly worse than Australia. Mm. There's no... I think it's uh, 10 times worse than Australia. It is nothing... It's not even close to, you know, the worst country in the world as far as gun violence goes, but Mm. it's a lot worse than Australia. Mm-hmm. And I think Australia is a good country to compare it with. And the question is, okay, what do you, what do you actually do with that? Mm. I mean, it is such a complex situation, Lawson. I don't have a solution. Do you have a solution for this one? I oh, uh, leave. Just <laughs> leave the United States. Move to Australia. Yeah, that's that's. that's I mean, the simple the simple reality is that. You are you're dealing with a country that is awash with guns, and so to be able to get rid of illegal guns is an impossibility. Mm. You would never be able to do what they did in Australia because Americans have a very different attitude towards their guns. You know, if you try to do a buyback in America, 
Americans have this attitude, no, you will only get my gun if you prize it from my cold, dead fingers. Yeah. Australians are just not like that. It's kind of like have it, you know. There are Australians who are. For it. I, there, there are Australians I, who are like that, but, yeah, but not the average like Australian. Yeah. The average American is like that. So how do you solve that problem? But what we have seen is that where people fight back are not always with guns because in the last two church shootings, they just grabbed the guy mm. and wrestled him. Mm. But what you do find is where people who are, where people are prepared to give their life to save the lives of others, the casualty numbers are drastically mm. reduced. Mm. Where that doesn't happen, a... A shooting in a, worship, a place of worship is usually sitting between 20 to 50, somewhere in that range. Mm. Where the congregation fights back, it's somewhere between zero and five. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's, I think that in our churches, it would not be a bad idea to have this discussion. Mm. How do we respond if there is an active shooter? Or somebody actually, you know, invades the. What what is the correct response? Who does what? And with the the climate of how churches uh, kind of function, and you know, also guns in Australia. I don't know if it's a super necessary thing here, but definitely in the states, they should the be. States. They need to be having this. Like, yeah. I know, I, I know a bunch of pastors that carry guns when they preach. If I was attending any church in the states right now, I would have an, uh, some kind of plan. Yeah. Yeah. Like 100%. Yeah, we'd be training the members. Like, you know, you have visitors like, each week. Just like fire drill. You have, okay, yeah. this, is the, this is the plan for fire drill. This is the plan for, you know, uh, 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 an active shooter. Mm. This is, isn't that unbelievable we're having this discussion? Mm. I mean, there's got to be a sign that Jesus is coming back soon when we're having this dis- when we're talking about this. Yeah, like carrying guns at church and... I'm not. I'm not saying that uh, this is what people need to do, but I think. But what they do need to do is have the discussion. Mm. Okay, in India they have constitutional religious liberty guaranteed by Article 25 to 28. Yeah, like just like we have in Australia, Article uh, One, Section 116 of our Constitution, which is a complete waste of time. Mm. It's also a democratic country. What a joke. That is what America and the world will look like before the second coming, actually the close of probation. And this is interesting because basically what it comes down to is this, is that judicial precedent overrides the Constitution all day long. Mm. doesn't matter what the Constitution says. Section 116 in Australia is a... It still exists there on paper, but it provides no legal basis for religious liberty in Australia whatsoever at all. Sometimes I have people come to me like, oh, they can't do this, they can't do that, they can't do the other because of Section 116. Go and study the judicial history of Section 116. It does not exist. Mm. And, of course, in India, Article 25 to 28 does not exist either. Mm. It's an amazing thing that... And, and of course, you know, when you take that across to America where they have the First First Amendment... Mm. If it can be done away with so easily in a country like Australia or India, it can be done away with easily in the United States. Yeah. And we see that when the Supreme Court of the United States, they can interpret the law one way and that becomes law. Then a few years later they can reverse that. I mean, they're about to, it seems, reverse uh, Roe versus Wade. Mm. Which means that the Constitution now means a completely different thing than what it meant before. Mm. 
So constitutions are great, but they do have a rubber nose that can be twisted one way or the other by the judiciary. Mm. Okay, it's an amazing thing that Jesus and his people are hated with gusto around the world. That is because Satan is the ruler of this world. The good news is we know that soon Jesus will come back, full will take back full control and ownership, and all who have hated him and his people will be vindicated. God says, I will revenge you. The price of freedom of choice has been very high for God, but that is the amazing love he has for humanity. He will not force anyone to love him back. We are all free to choose the second death. Very well put. So here's a discussion question for this morning. American guns, how should how should people of faith respond mm. to attacks on places of worship? <laughs> What's your thoughts on that? Be interested to hear what uh, different people have to say on that. Our number this morning is zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. That's got to be a really controversial one. Mm. Because in America you have the freedom to have lots of different forms of response. Yes. So what should it be? What 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 does a Christ, what approach does a Christian do in that kind of a situation? Hmm. Ooh, I don't know. you could appeal to all uh, kinds of biblical things. We've got our first one coming through here. As far as the gun buyback in Australia, I understand that the purchase of new guns was very high with the money that they got from the buyback. Yeah, that was some time ago and had some interesting implications to it uh, that I could probably share some interesting history on, but we do need to get to our Bible study. That's right. But comment on, on what, your, what your thoughts are about how do, how do you solve this issue in America? Attacks on places of worship. What do you actually do there? Leave. But not everybody has the ability to leave and no. come to Australia. No, no. Because we don't have space for 350 million no, people no, no, in no. Australia. Listen, 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 listen. You know how in the United States... Yes. They, they, you know, lots of people are worried about people coming into their country from other places. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. And to quell this, there was a particular dude, you know, who was very powerful, who said, let's build a wall to a solve it. Wall. We'll build a massive wall. Just, just do that the other direction. Just, just go into other countries. Just leave. Mm. <laughs> Problem solved. You know how much land they've got in Canada? Like a lot. Like China already built a great wall. Uh huh. I see them driving around all the time. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. We need okay, to get to our Bible study. <laughs> we just need to get to our Bible study. <laughs> we be, we need oh, desperately, desperately. Oh, we let's need go. To we're in Genesis. We are. Let's go there. I think we're up to chapter forty-two, forty-three, forty-three. Yes. The brothers return to Egypt. Yes. They've. They've gone back home. They've said to Dad, there is this random dude who knows all about us for some reason in Egypt, and he wants your youngest son, Benjamin, to come with us so yes. we can get more food. And if they don't do it, they're all going to starve. That's right. <laughs> let's pick up the story. Let's let's dig into it. Let's see what we can learn. There's really good lessons that we can observe as we go through these passages of Genesis. Mm. Well, I believe we read last time, we read about how... Yeah, essentially, they come back and give the report, and they're like, okay, Benjamin needs to come with us so that we can go back there and get grain to sustain us through the famine. And then we get to, in verse 43 and verse 6, the Bible says, Why were you so cruel to me, Jacob moaned to his sons. 
Why did you tell him you had another brother? The man kept asking us questions about our family, they replied. He asks, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? So we answered his questions. How could we know he would say, bring your brother down here? Judah said to his father, send the boy with me and we will be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation. And not only we, but you and our little ones. I personally guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. If we hadn't wasted all this time, we could have gone and returned twice by now. So they are really starving. Yeah. They are in deep trouble. Uh Uh-huh. Joseph has maybe given them, given them, well, Joseph has definitely given them a limited amount of grain because he hasn't given them seven years' worth. Yeah. They have reached the point where they should have gone twice mm. and now they have no other option but to go. Mm. And Jacob has held out because of his favouritism for his youngest brother. Mm. But they have nowhere else to go, mm-hmm. nothing else to turn to. All right. But uh, Lyle, dude, you're missing like the redemption story that's going on here. Oh, okay, okay. It's Judah. Judah's the one who steps up and says, "If Benjamin dies, like take my life." Do you know what Judah also did? Sold Joseph into slavery. Wow. He was the guy. He was the guy. Like Reuben was trying to save him. Judah was the one that stepped up and was like, "Hey, you know what we should do? We should sell Joseph for money." Like years and years and years ago. But now Judah's the one that steps up and he's like, I will give my life for Benjamin. Or the lives of my sons. Not that Jacob is going to take the lives of his grandchildren. That's right. But he's like, yeah. But he is illustrating how seriously he takes this. Yeah. Me and my family, like, we will do everything to protect Benjamin. In many ways, this should have been Reuben, shouldn't it? Well, I don't... I guess so. This kind of has a better redemption angle on it. Reuben, it does. It Reuben does. kind of just... Reuben was that, trying to do the right thing Yeah, Reuben was time. trying to do the right thing the whole time. So it probably should have been Reuben, but it's not Reuben. Judah is definitely finding some redemption here. Yeah. Well, he's ultimately... I see him as the, as the perpetrator. Like, he was the one that sparked the idea to sell him into slavery. And essentially what we're seeing, like, as we commented before last week, Joseph is trying to determine what his brothers are like now. Yes. Have they changed? Yes. Are they different people? And because Joseph... He particularly needs to know about Judah. Judah, yeah. More than the others Mm -hmm. because Judah was the one who, as you say, who instigated. He doesn't need to know as much about Reuben as he needs to know about Judah. He needs to know. Yeah. Well, he already kind of knows about Reuben because he overhears the conversation where Reuben's like, I tried to save Joseph and you guys sold him and now we're all going to die because of you. Like, Joseph already has this perspective of, oh, wow, Reuben was like on my side the whole time. But when it comes to Judah, it's like he's the enemy. Like he's, of course, like he has, all the brothers were complicit and, and all they all put him in the pier and they all lifted him up. But Judah's the guy. Judah's the one, and he's kind of gone through a, a mini redemption up through this already, what we've seen with Judah and Tamar and, you know, the kind of terrible situation that played out there. But now he has the opportunity to prove to Joseph that he is, like, the he, he's changed. And I think upon seeing that, it will be, Joseph's eyes will be open, but we'll see. We're skipping ahead. All right, all right, let's get into it. It continues on, and it says in verse 11, So their father Jacob finally said to them, 
If it can't be avoided, then at least do this. Pack your bags with the best products of this land. Take them down to the man as gifts. Balm, honey, gum, aromatic resin, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Also, take double the money that was put back in your sacks, as it was probably someone's mistake. Then take your brother and go back to the man. May God Almighty give mercy give you mercy as you go before the man so that he will release Simeon and let Benjamin return. But if I must lose my children, so be it. Well, he's going to lose them one way or the other. Yeah, that's he either right. loses them in Egypt or they or he watches them all starve to death. Yeah, that's correct. He's reached that particular point. So mm. what do you do now? This is desperate circumstances. Mm. So the men packed Jacob's gifts and doubled the money and headed with Benjamin. They finally arrived in Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the manager of his household, These men will eat with me this noon. Take them inside the palace, then go and slaughter an animal and prepare a big feast. So the man did as Joseph told him and took them into Joseph's place. The brothers were terrified when they saw that they were being taken into Joseph's house. It's because of the money someone put into our sacks last time we're here, they asked. He plans to pretend that we stole it. Then he will seize us, make us slaves, and take our donkeys. So they're like freaking we're out. We're done. Yeah. We're done. It's over. <laughs> like, this is a trick. Yep. Oh, this and is heavy. This, you know, he set, up a pre- he set us up. There's a precedent here. He just wants to enslave us. And it's fun, you know, to watch how Joseph messes with these guys in many ways. Mm. At the same time, there's a very serious purpose behind what Joseph is doing. Yeah. Because rather than taking them in there and, you know, enslaving them, he gives them a feast. They're also going through what he went through. Like, imagine the terror and fear of being sold into slavery and not knowing where you're going and not knowing what's going to happen and not knowing what's going to end up with you. And then furthermore, being like the best slave ever and then being like totally betrayed by, you know, well, the, your slave owner's wife and being thrown in prison and, and then being in prison and interpreting the dreams of the butler and the baker. And it's like, finally, I got to take it out of here. And then they don't like Joseph is just at every single point has been hit with the door, like a yes. hard stop. But he's persisted because of his reliance on God, and now he's giving his brothers a kind of a taste of that lifestyle and what he's been through. But, you know, ultimately, the, the, it's their conscience that's eating at them because he's just trying to do good by them. It is, absolutely. All right, so uh, they're heading in there, and they're like, yep, that's it, we're done, we're going to be sold. Yeah, yeah. But then in verse 19, it says, The brothers approached the manager of Joseph's household and spoke to him at the entrance to the palace. Sir, they said, We came to Egypt once before to buy food, but as we were returning home, we stopped for the night and opened our sacks. Then we discovered that each man's money, the exact amount paid, was at the top of the sack. Here it is. We brought it back with us. We also have additional money to buy more food. We have no idea who put the money in our sacks. Relax, don't be afraid, the household manager told him. Your God, the God of your father, must have put this treasure into your sacks. I know I have received your payment. Then he released Simeon and brought him out to them. The manager then led the men into Joseph's palace. He gave them water to wash their feet and provided food for their donkeys. They were all told that they were eating there. So they prepared gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. When Joseph came home... They gave him gifts they had brought for him. 
Then they bowed low to the ground before him. After greeting them, he asked, How is your father, the old man you spoke about? Is he still alive? Yes, they replied. Our father, your servant, is alive and well. And they bowed low again. Then Joseph took a look at his brother, Benjamin, and saw his own mother. Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about, Joseph asked? May God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into the private room where he broke down and wept. After washing his face, he came back out, keeping himself under control. Then he ordered, bring out the food. The waiters served Joseph at his table, and his brothers were served at a separate table. The Egyptians who ate with Joseph sat at their own table because the Egyptians despise Hebrews and refused to eat with them. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. It's The Breakfast Show. We're coming to the last question for our quiz this morning. Your last opportunity for today to get your name in the running to win this week's prize. You know what's so interesting? Our next question kind of asks and answers the question, did Jesus bear arms? So let's, let's have a read. What did Jesus make to drive out the money changers uh, and the sheep and the oxen from the temple? Zero four nine one zero six four. No one's been game. To, no one's been game to comment on our question that we put out to our listeners. Yeah. About uh, how, if you live in a, in America, what should, should you, your your church do? <laughs> but zero four nine one do at your church zero six four six six nine is the number to call and text if you know the answer. If you do, we've got food as medicine and a taste of food as medicine in the draw. You can win it. All you have to do is get your answers in. They just have to be correct, and we'll draw that at the end of the week. But again, that number is zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. And that question was, what did Jesus make to drive out the money changers and the sheep and the oxen from the temple. Okay, so coming through here on the text message, somebody's pointing out that uh, the Germans killed almost as many with the guillotine as what the French did during the revolution. Uh, 16,000 plus guillotines are already in place in many concentration camps around the world. And I have no question to, I have no reason to question that. Mm. Uh, I, I, I do question whether the Bible demands the use of guillotines, and I mm. also question whether it demands the use of beheading. Mm. My question is, and it's kind of pointed out in the other uh, text message here, that scientists, doctors say that it's a quick and painless way to die rather than being tortured to death. Is God necessarily going to give more reward to people who are beheaded than what he's going to give to people who have been burnt to death? Or so many other different ways that Christians have been martyred. That's mm. kind of kind of my question there and one day we'll find out i'm just going to take the stance of yes just because it opposes you and i think that uh yeah lyle what you're saying is wrong there you go (laughs) we will have this we will have this conversation in more depth we do need to get back to our bible study so let's head there and let's see what you've got to well we were just we were just talking about how they got invited to lunch yeah okay what's interesting here is that when they're invited to lunch, what does Joseph tell his servant to go and do to prepare prepare their food or dinner? Oh, go and kill a cow? Yes. Why would this be significant to these particular men that have turned up at this particular time? Because everyone is in famine. And they are on the point of starvation. Yeah. And they have arrived in Egypt where there is an abundance of food and they are there to buy grain. Now, the reason they're there to buy grain is because grain can last a long time. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you kill a, an animal in those days where you don't have refrigeration of any kind of type. The, the, the flesh is going to last a maximum of three days. Mm. It all has to be eaten within that period, else it has to be thrown out. Mm. So grain can last a very, very long time, and grain is the single most efficient way of preserving human life. Mm. It takes a lot of grain, an enormous amount of grain, to produce you know, one kilo of beef compared to one kilo of grain. Mm. So they're living on starvation rations. They should have been to Egypt three times already, and they've only been twice. So we know that they are down to the... The, the, the dregs of what is left, they're probably down to one meal a day and they're living off grain. Mm. They're not having anything fancy whatsoever at all. Joseph, when he invites them over for a meal, he's going to put on something special for them and it's not going to be a meal of grain, it's going to be a meal of the best of what Egypt has to offer because Egypt has these things to offer. That's actually so funny. In times of abundance, like when you've got a lot of animals, you feed the animals grain so that you can eat the animal. Yes. But for them, there's... There in is, times of famine... You eat the grain. Forget the animals, yeah, eat the grain. That's right. And so the situation is now, they're, they're, they're going to eat with... With Joseph, they're going to eat with the uh, the prime minister of Egypt. It says here that the Egyptians don't sit with them because the Egyptians despise Hebrews at this point in time, which is interesting because that uh, anti-Hebrew sentiment would go on and very drastically affect the uh, the course of Hebrew history. But at this point, they all sit down with Joseph, and then it says in verse 33, Joseph told each of his brothers where to sit, and to their amazements, he seated them according to the age, oldest to youngest. Man, they are like this. This is freaky. Like that would be so confused. Yes, that would mess with their heads because, particularly because a lot of these kids were born almost simultaneously. Yeah. They come from four different mothers. Yeah, you can't just look at them and go, "Ah, oh, I reckon that one's older," and then that one, and that. There is twelve of them. Uh huh. And they are all incredibly similar ages. They're born, you know, a few weeks, a few months apart. Uh huh. <laughs> how, you, how and, and he sits them perfectly. He's kind of building up in their minds that maybe he does have some kind of supernatural power because he's going to make that claim later on. Well, they're already kind of freaking out. They're like, how does he know that we have a dad who lives back? Like, why is he asking us all these questions? Who is this guy? Like, they are just being pestered. Like, they are just freaking out. Okay, so he, uh, he sits them at the table from oldest to youngest and who gets the most food? Well, it says in verse 34, And Joseph filled their plates with food from each his own table, giving Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others. So they feasted and drank freely with him. So here you've got, and Joseph, of course, is sitting with the Egyptians by himself as is Egyptian custom. That's what they did. They were a bit racist that way. It uh, wasn't uncommon for people to be racist in those days. And we deplore racism in all its forms. But if Joseph had broken the traditions at this particular time, it would not have worked for what he wanted to actually do. So he's sitting and eating with the Egyptians. He is listening into the conversation. He's hearing everything that is being said. And he is purposely showing favoritism. To Benjamin. Mm. Why is he doing that? Well, I think, you know, if we kind of understand the story, it's like because of favoritism so, like, shown towards Joseph, the brothers ostracized him. Yes. And sold him into slavery. Yes. They were so jealous. And they, he wants to find out how has Benjamin been treated while I've been away? Mm. How did the brothers treat Benjamin 
when they're not in the presence of my father. Mm. You know, they brought him all the way down here. Are they treating him right? And he knows, well, he knows that they assume that he can't speak their language. Mm. And so he's just listening into everything they say. Mm -hmm. Are they going to be commenting on this? He knows how they would have reacted back when he was there. They definitely would have commented on it in that particular situation Mm. and they would not have been happy about it. Mm. But these comments are not what they are talking about at this particular time. Mm. Well, now it clicks over to verse chapter 44. Yes. But when you get to, before we get to chapter 44, the other thing that is fascinating here is that, you know, they've kind of gone from, you know, terrible panic to, okay, now we're in favor with the, uh, with the Grand Vizier, the Prime Minister of Egypt, mm. and you'd be kind of thinking, okay, what kind of a mentally unstable, schizophrenic kind of guy is this? Yeah. One moment we're spies, the next moment we're his favourite friends. Yeah. How incredibly <laughs> good volatile. Cop, bad cop. <laughs> yeah, good cop, bad cop. How incredibly volatile is this situation mm. and what kind of trouble could they end up in? Mm. But right now, their bellies are full. They'd be feeling happy. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. Verse 44, chapter 44 and verse 1, the Bible says, When his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager. Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry. Put each man's money back into his sack. Then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack, along with the money for his grain. Okay, okay. We're going to we're gonna have to we're gonna have to hold it right there because this is another whole portion of the story. This is where it all is going to come to a culmination and... Uh, it's going to be the conclusion of the whole. It's going to be just amazing, but we're going to have to finish it off tomorrow because we are out of time. Joseph is setting them up. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. It is time for Question of the Day before we do. We've got some answers for our quiz. We've got a last text message come through, and then we're into Question of the Day. Okay, a couple of answers. The first one was Esau. Secondly, clothes. Thirdly, cattle. Fourthly, uh, Nineveh. I was just wondering if that fourthly doesn't sound right, does it? Fourth, fourthly. I don't know. Yeah, and finally, what did Jesus make to drive out money changers, sheep, and oxen from the temple? A whip slash scourge. So, did Jesus bear arms? Oh, we got text messages <laughs> coming through on this one. It's controversial. I'm going to read it for you. You got to tell me what you think of it. This is not the official position of. Anything apart from <laughs> the person sending the text message through, but it says if you are in America, if you are a churchgoer and have legally church purchased a gun, considering their situation there, I would agree for some selected members to wear a gun in church for the safety of the congregation. What would you do if someone was trying to kill your wife and family at church? You know how many people are killed every day in church around the world today? They have no weapons to defend themselves. I still stand by my solution. What happens if someone's trying to kill your wife at church? You leave. You might wife. You <laughs> might your wife might have some things to say as she. No, sees, but she'll leave too as she sees your back heading out the door. No, she'll come with you. <laughs> surely. But right now it is time for question of the day. The Bible. Oh, not the Bible. Sky asks a question, and she asks, I have heard that divorced people are not allowed to remarry, only widows. Is that true? No. That's oh. not true. Okay. So in Matthew chapter 5, uh, if we go down to verse, let me see here, uh, verse 32, the Bible says, Jesus says, but I say unto you that whoever shall put away his wife, except for the cause of unfaithfulness, 
causes her to commit adultery, and whoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. Okay, so the issue here is, well, the Bible uses the word fornication, but the that's a very broad term in uh, biblical language that implies unfaithfulness. Mm. And so the issue here is that if your spouse uh, is unfaithful to you, you do have the right and the ability to be able to divorce them. Uh, of course, divorce carries with it the implication of remarriage because divorce means you are no longer married, you are now a single person. And so that's what the Bible says mm. right there. Uh, and the key word being the word accept. Mm. So anyone who does this except for unfaithfulness in the relationship, then uh, they are um, causing her to uh, commit adultery. And so if there's unfaithfulness, then there is no problem with uh, if you choose to have a divorce and to marry somebody else. There's another very interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The whole chapter is worth reading to gain the context of this passage where the Bible talks about separation. Mm. And separation is very, very important and vital for lots of people, particularly those who are living in a dangerous situation. If Particularly if you are a woman mm. who is being... Who get, if, if, you are, if you are hit by your husband, mm. then you just need to leave. Mm. Now, I know that there are plenty of women out there who hit their husbands as well, and I'm not con- as concerned because there is a power... There is usually a power differentiation between the two, mm. and the husband is usually stronger, and I'm not as afraid because we do not have as many deaths from men who are beaten to death by their wives as what we do wives who are beaten to death by their husbands. Yeah. And so I just want to say to any wives out there... He hits you, just leave. Mm-hmm. Don't say, oh, he'll never do it again, that kind of thing. No, just leave. Yeah. If he hits on you, then maybe stay because that's, yeah, that's That's a good cute. thing. If, yeah. if, that's, if you're married, then that's <laughs> how it should be. Amen. Uh, and then, of course, you know, consent and all, all that kind of stuff, we understand that. Mm. Okay. But First Corinthians chapter 15 talks about separation and the need for separation. Uh, talks about Christian couples who separate because they you know, can't get on for a time of prayer and fasting so that they can get on and come back together. And Paul recommends that uh, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Then he also talks about if you are married to an unbeliever or somebody who becomes an unbeliever, stay married to that person. Mm-hmm. But if that unbeliever decides to leave, so for instance you're married to somebody, they cease to be a believer and they're like, I'm out of here. Mm. It says this, but if the husband, uh, this is verse 15, but if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. And so the question is, okay, what is it that is binding them together? The the answer is obviously the marriage covenant. Mm. And if the marriage covenant is no longer binding them together, then the implication is that you can move on with your life. Mm. This is an implied one. It's not as clear cut. And you would want to pray long and hard about this particular passage of Scripture right here uh, before you went through with a divorce. Mm. But divorce is something that we should avoid at all costs, in all circumstances, and the key to avoiding divorce is getting counselling early rather than leaving it until it's too late and Mm. it's terminal. Which brings us to the end of our show. That's kind of sad. We're going to miss you guys until tomorrow morning. Don't forget to talk faith, to live faith, to act faith. As you go through this day, you will grow strong in Jesus Christ. God be with you till we meet again. God be with you till we meet again. By His counsel's guide uphold you. With His sheep securely fold you. God be with you 
Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.